Hey everyone, Mike here. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up and a preamble for this first episode that we're doing for our July break. This is the IRCB Movie Club, a Patreon-exclusive series that we've been doing since March of 2020. Paul, Brian, and I sit down and talk about movies that are somewhat related or completely adapted from comic books. Uh, it's been a really exciting series. We allow folks to vote on the episodes after the first episode as to what we're going to be talking about next. Uh, and this first one is quite a doozy. We're talking about Ghost World, one of Paul's favorite movies, I think. And uh, Brian and I have some interesting thoughts. But if you're interested in the rest of the series, make sure you check them out on Patreon at patreon.com com slash IRCB podcast and I hope you enjoy it. Please silence your cell phones, cease the needless chit chat. It's time for the movie to begin. Welcome to the IRCB Movie Club. I am your host, Paul Jaceley, joined uh, by Mike Rappin. Hello. And Brian Murray. Hi. Welcome to the theater, guys. This is the inaugural episode of this um, podcast we're going to try. Um, this is an idea I had and I pitched to Mike, so we're going to see how it goes. I want to talk about comics and movies, how they intersect, the differences between the mediums, movies about comics, movies that are adaptations of comics, movies that inspired comics. Two of my favorite things to talk about, so I figured why not do it in one podcast. And we're going to start off with the inaugural episode talking about Ghost World, the 2001 film directed by Terry Zweigoff and adapted from the comic written by Daniel Klaus. Um, this came out in 2001. As I mentioned, the comic was originally published in Daniel Klaus's series 8-Ball between the years 93 to 97 of serialized. And we'll get into it deeper, but just to start off the conversation, I'm going to say this is probably the most successful comic book adaptation into a film that I've seen, and that's why I want to talk about it. Guys, what do you think about the movie Ghost World? And as an adaptation. I'm just going to jump right in and say, I feel like this movie captured the, the same feeling that the Ghost World comic tried to put off, but as an adaptation, I don't think that it works in the latter third of the movie. Interesting. Um, all I mean, up until a certain point in the movie, I feel like it works. There's natural changes that need to be made because of, you know, it's a movie. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I do feel like, on the whole, it's not as great of an adaptation as maybe Paul thinks. <laughs> okay. So maybe more to say on that later, I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Brian, what, what are your thoughts initially? Yeah, I, I tend to be in the same vein. I thought that the weird Steve Buscemi <laughs> chicken chicken manager <laughs> right uh story arc I, i'm i'm not sure what it was doing in the movie i guess okay because the book didn't have a character anything like that we had the the mystic or whatever his his career was right yeah who was just kind of like filling that role of creepy old dude mm -hmm. uh but yeah it it seemed like a strange thing to materialize. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, you know very briefly for anyone that hasn't seen Ghost World, um, the 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 sort of I guess elevator pitch of the movie and the comic is that it's about two teenage girls who had just graduated high school and they're kind of adrift and aimless, trying to find their place in the world. the The comic, like a lot of Daniel Klaus comics, has a sort of a very like esoteric, idiosyncratic sort of vibe to it. You know, there's a sort of aimlessness to the story that works in the comic that really wouldn't translate to a film. And I think that's why the movie, you know, expands the Steve Buscemi character into a larger role. It introduces a sort of more digestible idea of a plot than the comic has. Mm -hmm. And I think for me personally, 
what I why I say it's a successful adaptation has more to do with the aesthetic quality than maybe the the plot because Daniel Klaus's comics have a unique sort of um, uh, a strangeness to them. You know, there's a pacing sense that he has that's very unique. The way that he sort of creates a mood in the comic. And that's the hardest thing to translate, I think, is that sense of pacing and mood from a comic to a film. And that's what the movie does successfully for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely get got that same feeling. Like, I think it's, like I said, in the first two thirds of the movie, I think that that all exists. Mm-hmm. And in order to make the movie more of a cohesive movie, you know, they add different storylines. Like the Steve Buscemi storyline um, kind of comes to the forefront by the you get by the halfway point in the movie. But, you know, you've also got Enid going to art school. Um, I guess, I mean, we haven't said it. We're a couple <laughs> minutes in. Full spoilers for this oh, yeah. series yeah, yeah. and this movie that came out, you know, over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Enid going to art school, Steve Buscemi's character becoming this, this chicken manager, as Brian said, and he's got this art. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that you know, you added, you put those into the movie to make them a more cohesive movie. I did, as I watched the movie, I didn't realize that it came out in 2001. To me, this felt like a movie straight out of 1997. Okay. Yeah. Um, if only because it had all of the trademarks of, okay, we need to create this thing and then wrap it up and then create this thing and wrap it up and create this thing and then wrap it up. Mm-hmm. It's something that I feel like in a modern day retelling of this story, I think if you made this movie in the 2010s, um, they would have been way more vague. They would have been a com- like more comfortable with being super vague about some things. Sure. Um, like maybe you wouldn't have wouldn't have needed to wrap up the Steve Buscemi storyline because you kind of just you you play off the idea that Enid and e- Enid in general and, and kind of Becky to a certain point, but like the, it's, she's just aimless. Like things just happen and she just lets them happen and then she moves on and she's so aimless about it um, and she she's so directionless that it doesn't matter. Like all of these people are affected by her mm-hmm. and like there's a wake. And so you wouldn't even get the resolution of the Steve Buscemi storyline. Instead, it would just disappear. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I think like there were some, some things that I couldn't take a, I, I, I couldn't enjoy in the movie mm-hmm. because it felt like they had to wrap things or they, they felt the need to wrap things up um, when it didn't really absolutely need to happen. I mean, the end of the movie is kind of, ambiguous you know she does the thing that she says but like where is she gonna go right. we don't know because that's the end of this like particular moment in her life uh-huh. um yeah i don't know i have been i've been digesting a lot of this over the last couple of days because i read the comic and then that same night i watched the movie oh, okay yeah so i've got a lot of this stuff super fresh in my head or when i was watching the movie you know I had a lot of things super fresh in my head mm-hmm. um like specific lines come out of the comic right into the movie which i really appreciate yeah. because in the comic they're they're classic lines mm-hmm. um and I, I appreciated that about the film for sure but um yeah i'm, I'm rambling now <laughs> no it's fine <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting that you referred to uh enid having a wake uh, I probably would have used the term uh, trail of destruction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Because her, her modus operandi in both the comic and the book seems to be, you know, go to a thing and ruin it and then move <laughs> to the next thing and ruin that. <laughs> and you can, I think that the comic is much more successful in showing that she doesn't necessarily like that about herself. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, she I just don't think it comes through quite as well through acting as it does through the the artwork in the book. Yeah. Um, well, that's a, <laughs> that's a whole other piece of discussion I think we could have about Scarlett Johansson and Thora Birch in this movie because um, I have I haven't had a couple problems with the way that they were either directed. But mm, anyway, sorry okay. to continue your point, Brian. Yeah, it's it's just the uh, in in the movie 
Enid seems much more unrepentantly mean. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. In the yeah. book, where you can, you, you really get the sense that she doesn't know why she's being so mean to people. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, it's just because she thinks it's funny and she's going to keep doing it. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess a very quick uh, sidebar here. I'm curious to know uh, when the first time you both saw the movie and read the comic uh, to give a sense of like, you know, uh, what we're talking about here. Because for me, I saw this movie shortly after it came out. Um, So I was probably like 19. So I found myself identifying with those characters very heavily because I was about in the same boat in my life and uh, in my personal aesthetic and approach to the world was pretty similar to Enid at that point. For better or for worse, yeah. you know. So yeah. the movie really hit home for me. And then reading the comic was a very interesting experience because it was kind of like the first... I hadn't read Daniel Klaus before that, so it was my first introduction to that. And then he he is one of my favorite cartoonists. And as as much as I like his stuff, it's almost kind of hard to read because it is so, like, personal in a weird, in a weird strange way. So mm-hmm. going back now and re-watching that movie, you know, 19 years later rereading the book uh, after a few years and having read a lot of Klaus stuff, having that distance and being older really changed my opinion of it. At the same time, I still find myself enjoying it. So I guess I'm just curious what your guys' history with the with this material is. Yeah, I, I read this, or I should say, reading this for the first time mm-hmm. was a thing that happened recently, I guess. That's yeah. a weird way to say that. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, I picked this book up uh, I, I'd seen it a million times yeah. um, because in high school, uh, I want to say like maybe 2004, 2005, um, this was like a big thing, like among some of the friends that I had. And this movie like really shocked them. They're like, oh man, these people are exactly like us. They don't give a living shit about anything. And um, and I, I remember feeling this kind of like understanding about that. And I remember being, I, I will say like when I, I think I was like 16 or 17 years old, I was very bored by the movie. Um, and so going, you know, coming out of it, I was just like, yeah, all I remember from that movie, watching it maybe 15 years ago, um, or so, um, was that Scarlett Johansson was just like this deadpan character. And it, I, I did, I like Steve Buscemi a lot, Mm -hmm. but he felt like a creep. (laughs) And I mean, (laughs) that, that, that story is still there, right? Like a lot of that stuff is still there. But I think since then I've watched a lot of different other movies that allow me to appreciate the type of film that Ghost World is, Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, reading comic books and understanding where this this movie's coming from helps as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I hadn't read the comic until recently, but I had seen the movie, I think, twice mm-hmm. when I was younger, and I don't remember liking it at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and, and not understanding why people had such a big fan. And I'm not trying to poo-poo on you by any means, Paul. Yeah. I just, I, that was my feeling. And then going into it again, um, I did like it a lot more than I think the first time I saw sure. it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I saw the movie for the first time three days ago <laughs> okay and mm-hmm. read the comic for the first time yesterday <laughs> so it's all very very recent for me yeah i i, I think um, that's interesting you know the that how that that first exposure to it and uh, you know watching it as a teenager is like i said a very different experience than watching it as an adult so yeah because I, I think that watching it as as a 31 year old i definitely had a very different experience right yeah. those uh, goddamn I, kids they're so yeah, I mean, disrespectful <laughs> I mean, I spent most of it just being like, why are you being so fucking mean to people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, so maybe that's uh, one of the themes of the movie I want to talk about is this idea that Enid, specifically in the movie, I think in the comic, like you said, Brian, it's it's more ambiguous, you know, what her personality is and what her place in the world is. But that 
the directionless that she feels in, this, feels in the movie comes off as misanthropy, which is a pretty common theme in a lot of Daniel Klaus's work. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's it, a lot of his work is autobiographical. It seems, you know, and and it's no mistake that Enid Koslaw is an anagram for Daniel Klaus. You know, he is that character basically. But oh, <laughs> I, I did not know that. that. Just blow your mind. <laughs> Paul, hold on. I have to reevaluate my entire thought process now. No, no, I, I had no idea about yeah. that. So, I mean, but that's common in a lot of his work. I think he does kind of self-project onto the page a lot, and most of his characters right. are misanthropic. But in the movie, it comes off as mean-spirited. But I think, you know, she's grasping for a personality. That's why you see her dye her hair. That's why you see her change her outfit so much, change her glasses. You know, she's trying out different personalities to find the right one. Mm-hmm. And she's looking for a sense of authenticity, like something real. And I think the way that they contrast that with the Seymour character, the Steve Buscemi character, is that he's found his niche. He loves old jazz and blues records. He collects old stuff. He loves old pop culture. He feels out of place with the world, which is why Enid sort of, uh, you know, uh, identifies with him. But he's miserable, mm-hmm. miserable because of it, you know? Right. And I think right. that there's a point which you kind of realize that um, Enid sees that future. It's like, oh, I'm going to be miserable. And that's, you know, leads to the ending of the movie when she has to get away from everything, you know? Yeah. So I think that's, that arc is there in both the comic and the film. And I just think maybe the film, because it, it has to get it done more quickly in a way, it comes off as mean-spirited in the way that the comic doesn't. Yes. Oh, man. See, that's really interesting because I had a completely different interpretation of the comic. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I, I felt like the comic was a story about two people that are wandering aimlessly and their friendship existed solely because they had nothing nothing else to yeah, do. Yeah. As soon as Enid decides, hey, I'm going to go to art school, and she kind of throws this whole thing in her friend's face to say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave, and like that's going to be the end of our friendship. And I'm sorry, like you could come with if you want. It, it was so interesting to see that the dynamic between Becky and Enid was to me completely switched in some capacity in the movie versus the comic because it seems like more in the comic Enid was kind of this more for lack of a better phrase like a shithead character Mm -hmm. who's like trying to spite people and in the in the movie it seemed like Becky was the one who was insinuating a lot of that stuff um Mm. not to say that that Enid was trying to move away from it but anyways to get back to my original point like to me it felt like the comic was about two friends drifting apart and how like Becky moved on with her life and Enid never did. And Enid just like is mad at her about that. Like, especially in the final pages Mm -hmm. of the story. Um, Whereas in the movie, it's kind of more like, it's more like Enid's trying to escape and she makes this choice for herself because other people have moved on. Like they moved on from her, not like a natural, like distancing of two friends. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like she had to make the choice to be like, I'm getting the hell out of here. Whereas in the comic, it was like everyone just kind of left her behind and she was spiteful because of that. Um, So like, I liked that that more in the, in the movie where we had one character, we had Becky who's, you know, she's, she's trying to grow up is essentially what we're seeing. Yes. As Becky is trying to, you know, get a job, get an apartment, move on with her life. Whereas Enid, seems to really want to dig in her heels and just live in that sort of, you know, hateful post high school bubble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the, in the, in the comic, it's totally different. Like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it it was, it was really interesting because I, I kind of related to that feeling a lot. Um, and I should say not kind of, I a hundred percent related to that feeling. I remembering, remembering being like 16, 17, 18 years old and just being 
like so set in in the idea that like yeah i'm gonna be a rebellious punk and i'm just gonna be totally shitty and we're gonna you know follow people in my car despite how fucking awful and creepy that is and you know go to this diner and just hang out and be rude to the staff like Mm -hmm. i get that i totally get that (laughs) um yeah and yet nowadays i look back at that with like absolute shame and just like i can't believe how garbage of a person i was when i was 17 Mm -hmm. you know um i mean that's i think that a lot of people have that that same feeling but um i totally get that it's just what the difference between what happens in the movie and in the comic i think is quite different than what happens in real life but well um sort of sort of i mean friends drift apart i really like again i really related to that part in the comic which is why i appreciate it a lot yeah i think if nothing else i think that the comic is maybe a better representation of that that feeling, you know, the, mm-hmm. the movie, there is a sort of confrontation that the characters have that causes a split. Whereas in the comic, there really is just a sense of growing apart. There's nothing that causes yeah. the fight or the breakup. It's just like you're going different directions. You don't, you're not seeing each other in high school every day. So you, you naturally sort of drift apart. And that's a pretty common story that I think everyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. I, do, I briefly want to say that I think there is a sense in the movie when they initially, um, contact Seymour, because, like, again, Seymour, the Sibashemi character, he places the ad in the personal paper, the personal ad. They call him, pretend to be the woman, right? Then they feel real guilty about it. You get that in both the comic and the movie. It might be very brief, but they kind of do feel bad about leading that guy on, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I was surprised, you know, rewatching it, because um, I barely remembered it. I just remember having, like, just weird feelings about the movie yeah. when I had first seen it. And watching them take that little bit of the comic book and expound upon it for almost the whole movie. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting direction to go because I think while they, while they did that, and I, I like that despite, despite that, they still managed to fit in some of the key scenes from the comic. Yeah. Like, you know, Enid having the garage sale selling her stuff, and she's like, well, no, I can't sell that yeah. stuff. But then, of course, it's cheapened because... Paul, I just want to get on this moment. This <laughs> go, is my small it. little soapbox. Yeah. The moment in in the comic where Enid is like selling stuff. It's very early on in the story, and Becky's like, "What are you doing? You're gonna? Why are you selling this stuff? You're actually gonna sell this little action figure weird dude?" Yeah. And she's like, "No, that thing's not for sale." And there's this moment of her being like, "I don't want to let go of this life that I have," and that's like a clear metaphor to me. Yeah. <laughs> in the in the movie. She goes to this garage sale, this little flea market that's happening at Steve Buscemi's apartment complex, and w- one of the guys that's there, Steve Buscemi's roommate, does that thing, and then later in the movie, Enid does it to me, which is like, cheapens the idea that it's not Enid trying to hold on to things, it's that Enid's trying to be like these people that she thinks is really cool, yeah. and she wants to be like them, and of course, later in the movie, she realizes that's not what she wants, but... Mm-hmm. Regardless, it super cheapened that hmm. moment for me. I was so frustrated by it when I was watching the movie. <laughs> that yeah, I didn't have that same reaction. But now you're talking about it, that does make sense. Like that is. But but again, I think that the idea that Enid is trying to find her place in the world, she maybe identifies with these outsiders and losers. The whole both the movie and the comic, you know, and a lot of Daniel Klaus's work is sort of an obsession with people that seem to be outside of culture and outside of the the mm-hmm. norm Enid's is trying yeah, it, to she's play acting to be one of those people where maybe she, that's not really her authentic self like she's not there yet you know she's not a yeah. total like loser yet you know <laughs> yeah and, and to that point I mean I guess I say that, that moment was cheapened for me because I like the way that it happened in the comic yeah. but I guess to, to your point I, the idea that she's trying to emulate people mm-hmm. like in a way maybe subconsciously um that she that she deems as like 
cool or other or whatever that she wants to be um, is an interesting thing. I mean, the, the, the whole movie is her trying to find a way to be more like Steve Buscemi's character. And then I think later in the movie, as it's revealed that like, he's like, no, my life is fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. Don't be like <laughs> yeah, me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he had yeah. the, the greatest line of, uh, when she's trying to set him up with a date and he's like, she's like, well, find somebody who shares your interest. He's like, no, I don't like my interests. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I just, yeah. She like, like coming to that as like, like a, a nerd myself and just being like, I don't know if I'd want to date somebody who is as like stupidly into star Wars trivia as I am. Like, I don't know if that would work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I know I mentioned it earlier, but like the idea that his, the things he enjoy, the things that he enjoys ends up kind of making him miserable, you know, and I think that's really interesting. I think the movie introduces this idea that the different characters are engaging with art and pop culture in really different ways. You know, like Steve, again, Steve Buscemi's character is likes authentic jazz music. The scene where they go to the the bar to see the blues guy, like that's one of the greatest scenes. I love that scene. Yeah. And blues hammer has definitely become a shorthand phrase for me to describe a terrible band, you know, because of that scene. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> I love the, the woman that, that ends up, you know, Steve Buscemi ends up sitting with for a moment. Yeah. just like, Oh, if you like authentic blues, you're really going to like this band. And he, he believes her right. for some, like for a short second. And this <laughs> band comes on. Yeah. And it's like lit the the band lit if they tried to like put a bluesy sound to it. Exactly. It's so awful. It's terrible. And the, again, the idea of authenticity comes up, and you can kind of contrast that with the uh, the sort of a brief subplot about the uh, cook's chicken and the racist marketing like that. You know the, that I think there's a through line between the idea of that being authentic blues by a bunch of white guys singing about plowing in the cotton field. You know, yeah, versus, about yeah, so, in the fucking cotton field. Yeah, um, but as I was saying, like his his enjoyment that he used to get from that stuff is long gone. You have Enid, who, you know, is obsessed with sort of strange pop culture. Uh, there's a sense of nostalgia that she has for stuff she liked as a kid, but it almost feels like it's an ironic distance from it. And then that's contrasted with Ileana Douglas's character, the art teacher, who has such a narrow and uh, shallow view of what art means, you know, and it, art oh, has man. to be something. The yeah. way those different characters sort of look at art, I think, is really interesting to kind of uh, explore when you watch the movie and what that might mean. Yeah, you know? I, I think that the the art teacher character definitely brought to the forefront that sort of uh, theme of like everybody is inauthentic. Right. From mm-hmm. the comic. Uh, it's It's... Like it's definitely present in the comic. You can certainly see it there, but I think it's it's much clearer when you have this one character who is clearly like the ev- everything that she expresses is based around this sort of ideal of art, right? You know, she she thinks yeah. that art has to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and of course, this movie managed to get a dig in at comics um intentionally you know i think <laughs> yeah, yeah. to say like you know enid has drawn all these drawings of people and things like that and they're kind of cartoony and they clearly look like comics and she's like this isn't art what what, what does this mean she's like i don't know i just like don nuts like <laughs> right exactly <laughs> you know things yeah. like that that i think anybody nowadays would go no that's that is genuine art like you created it you spent time you you put passion into it mm-hmm. um and I, I love that that she just she calls it out because i mean in in the comic the the dig that we get at com- comics is more digs at comic creators right as Enid is like, ah, my ideal person is Daniel Klaus. He, I've never seen him before, but I love him. And then they run into him at the zine store. Yeah. And she's like, that dude was a creep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I mentioned it earlier. Like, I love Daniel Klaus's work, but I find it sometimes hard to uh, read. 
uh, because of there is such a pessimism to it, but it's also a pessimism that's self-directed. As misanthropic as his comics can be, he almost hates himself mm-hmm. more than he hates the rest of the world. And that kind of comes yeah. through. Um, yeah, absolutely. It is interesting, too, because I think this movie, specifically the comic, because it came out like in the mid-90s, but the movie coming out in 2001, it's like that, that moment right before... Uh, the internet kind of homogenized all of pop culture. You know, you could be sort of have a unique experience. You know, you had to search things out. You know, the idea that she's buying like bootleg tapes from the guy that works at the zine store is a very specific moment in time, right? That's long gone, you know? (laughs) And I think the movie captures that. What a sentence, too. (laughs) Yes, yes. Like there are kids who are going to have no idea what buying bootleg tapes at the zine store means. (laughs) Right, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just had to get that out. (laughs) No, but I I think the movie really captures that, you know, because I was old enough to catch the tail end of that you know right before the internet changed everything you know not mm-hmm. to sound too much like a you know a boomer i guess but no, it's right too before, late. i know before it all changed um but what's interesting is i think you know the the movie and the comic even the term ghost world you know it, it's trying to put a finger on that moment right before that like that there's something is changing and I can't quite ex- put my finger on what it is and I'm uncomfortable with it, but I don't know how to change it. You know what I mean? Like, I think the movie captures that really well as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned the ending of the, of the movie. It's interesting. I never got this until I just rewatched it and kind of did a little bit of research, but a lot of people interpret the ending of the movie when, when Enid is waiting for the bus and gets on the bus, which apparently, you know, she thought, wasn't running anymore. A lot of people interpret that as a metaphor for suicide, which I didn't get mm-hmm. initially. But when I rewatched the movie uh, this past week, I kind of like had that a brief moment of thinking that. So what do you guys think about that? Oh, that yeah. interpretation? Yeah, that, that definitely occurred to me. Hmm, okay. It's because like we had uh, the old man. What was, I don't remember what his name was. Uh, Norman. Norman. Yeah. We had sad old Norman who was waiting on that bus state, that bus stop mm-hmm. every single day. And he just really seemed like a guy who was on his last days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then he got on the bus and left. And so when we see her get on the bus as well, I had that sort of a, a metaphor for, you know, crossing the river sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. I'm, I am blind to all of this. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, well, I feel like in the comic, that's definitely not. Right. Right. That's not even there. possible. Yeah. yeah. Because they make a comment earlier about like, oh, they reactivated this bus stop, and that takes any any possibility for metaphor out of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, I I don't want to say one's better than the other. I think what one of the reasons I would call this a successful adaptation, you know, is that it it isn't a slavish interpretation of the comic onto the screen. You know, the the changes that they make benefit a movie more than they would a comic, if that makes sense. And I think they both stand side by side along with each other. You can enjoy both for different reasons. But I do think the comic, the ending of the comic is so much more melancholy in a way. You know, it's not as melodramatic. Mm-hmm. The, you know, she sees Rebecca sitting in the diner by herself and she just, you know, that comment that Ina makes to herself, you've certainly grown into a beautiful woman. And that's the way, it's such a beautiful ending, you know. You know, that, yeah. you know it's two friends not reconnecting, but still one of them having that re- realization of that the friendship is done. Was yeah. was she sitting by herself, or was she sitting there oh, with the uh, the boy with Josh? Yeah, that's right. Josh, yeah. yeah. Um, 
one of my favorite parts of the movie that I loved the first time I watched it, and it still cracks me up, is Josh working at the convenience store and the guy with the mullet with no shirt coming in. <laughs> oh my god! It's not in the it's not in the comic, but that is the thing. The thing that they do what's great about the movie is like stuff like that isn't in the the story Ghost World, but that is definitely from a Daniel Klaus comic. Like that character exists in a Daniel Klaus comic. The stuff that they add oh. feels like they just took other parts of Eight Ball and threw it into the movie. To me, so that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that, like, they're, they're definitely, I don't know, th- this, is, this is where I'm very torn on the movie, because I feel like, like I said, the first two-thirds of this movie, I feel like, is a, like a really solid reinterpretation, adaptation of the, of the original work, mm-hmm. because it's, like, you can't necessarily make a series of vignettes like, like you can in a comic, yeah. right, um, it, for a movie, um, so to try to create, like, some kind of cohesive story, like, you totally can do that. Um, and I think you you capture a lot of the feelings of these characters, but it has this '90s vibe of like we have to wrap everything up, we have to give a story to everything, and something has to show up. And I don't, like I don't, like I like the idea of maybe not knowing what happened to Steve Buscemi's character, or or maybe not seeing like what happened to I don't know, Becky after a certain while. Right. Like she should have just been gone from the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. I, I would have been really interested to to see. Like I, I don't think that. Steve Buscemi's character and Scarlett Johansson's character should have ever really interacted um, because oh, okay. those were like Enid was intentionally like keeping them apart because that's just how she wanted to live her life. Like she wanted to have something um, just for herself. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like they, they went a bit too far in trying to make it wrap up like a movie. Mm-hmm. I, I already kind of talked about this, yeah. but just th- that's the thing that kind of pulls me away because again, that, that feeling that you get out of the comic is, is, is so great. Mm-hmm. Um, like each, I've been thinking about this for like two days straight. <laughs> I'm glad like yeah. how much I enjoyed the comic yeah. after a while. Cause I, I, I mean, there was some weird racist Nazi shit like in the story. Well, yeah, the, <laughs> that kind yeah. of is weird. Um, yeah. which I, I think is maybe a sign of the, like what he was trying to do is say like, look at how offensive and awful these women are. But, um, at the same time, it's, um, they had to, you know, cut that out for the movie to make it a little bit more PG despite calling that one guy a Nazi right early on in the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I, yeah, I just, even, I even know, with they, the stuff they cut out, the movie still had a lot of, uh, a lot of homophobia and slurs and stuff. Yeah. 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 Which like, yeah, that's how people talked in the nineties. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not a criticism <laughs> and more just a comment that like, and that's the stuff they kept in. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I think that that's interesting. Uh, the idea of the characters being unlikable is Again, a very common theme in a lot of Daniel Klaus's comics. Um, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you you find yourself, you know, identifying with them at the same time. You know, oh totally. So because yeah, we've all been See, shit. We've all been shitheads in our lives. So I mean, right? That's that's where I I almost disagree. Okay, yeah. just because like like I like I, I definitely was a shit at some point in my life. Don't get me wrong, but I also think that for a like there, there wasn't. There also wasn't an interesting story to tell about me at that point oh, okay. in my life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that, like, in order for me to get invested in the story to really like care what's happening in Enid's life, I felt like there had to be some something to give me a reason to see her as more mm-hmm. than just sort of the the one note a hole that mm-hmm. the movie made her out to be. Yeah. So if we had just seen her like be really nice to her dad one time or mm. you know if, if she and becky were never mean to each other just to everybody else mm-hmm. i think that would have given me like a 
like a nucleus to kind of grab onto and build empathy around. Sure. Um, her, yeah, but I, yeah, I struggled. Her uh, sort of, if you can call it a redemption, her redemption happens so late and is so fleeting in the movie. I, there's a moment in the comic where, you know, she's looking for the record that she had as a kid. The, the song about with, you know, with a smile on my face, ribbon in my hair, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is a, such a great moment in the comic. Where she's looking for the record and it sort of magically appears on her turntable. You know, I love that part. They mm-hmm. mention that so briefly in the movie, toward the end of the movie, she like is listening to that song and she keeps playing it over and over again, like she was playing the old blues record over and over again. It's almost that moment when she kind of like has a fleeting sort of sense of what am I doing? <laughs> you know, like what happened to the, yeah. the my happiness? Where did it go? Did I lose it? Is it my fault? Mm-hmm. You know, it's but it happens so fleetingly and so late in the movie that it's it's hard to see it as a redemption arc, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Um, because I, 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 like I said, I, I did like the way that they inserted a lot of bits and pieces from the comic, like yeah. sometimes out of order, but the order really didn't matter. Um, just to like make sure you got the same vibe. But yeah, that that one was kind of surprising that it came so late. Yeah, because it is to me like a crucial part of the end of the story. It definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about the story and the interpretation, uh, or how it translated. Uh, from the comic to the movie, I kind of want to talk about the aesthetics because I think that for me is the most successful part of the of the movie really is that Daniel Klaus has a very idiosyncratic style and somehow the movie was able to capture that without just, you know, m- treating the comic as a storyboard, which I think a lot of in- adaptations tend to do. You know, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, interviews with Zygoff and Klaus, they both have made that point. It's like they did not want to do that. They did not want to just throw the comic on the screen as is. They really wanted to make the movie feel like the comic without it, you know, being a direct adaptation, so to speak. So the, the sense that you get from the comic is on the screen in the way that the scenes last just slightly too long. You know, I think Mike, your point about maybe some criticism of the acting, I think that's on purpose to give it that sense. A lot of the lines are delivered sort of, you know, haltingly, or there's a gap between the dialogue when characters are speaking, and I think it's to create that same mood that's there in the comic. Yeah, I mean, I, I if if that's the case, like I guess you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know if I necessarily liked it because it to me that it all played out as really dry and flat. Sure. And I understand that that's kind of how the characters are. They're giving this like really dry sarcasm in some cases, yeah. um, and in in some scenes it works. In others, it feels like. They like they didn't know what to tell the actor to do, so they just said, "And action! What am I supposed to do? Just read your lines, dummy!" Like mm. it, it to me, it, it felt like there was some to misunderstanding as to how some characters were supposed to act. Yeah. It, I remember thinking when I first saw this that like Scarlett Johansson is a bad actress, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I think we, she's proven since then that like she's not necessarily a bad actress. It's right. just like this movie had her portray a character that is very flat. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's a testament to how good of an actress she is. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, in my head, I, you know, just kind of put the, the other idea of, okay, you know, young actor, you know, indie film, like, this is just like a miss or like strangely put together thing. But then like you've switched over and you look at someone like Steve Buscemi and like that dude's giving it his all. And I totally got the desperation and sadness in his character. <laughs> like he... He just looks exhausted with his life yeah. in the movie. And I've seen Steve Buscemi in plenty of other things, and he d- he doesn't look like that all the time. So, like, I, I think that there definitely 
is some serious acting cred going on there. It yeah. just it's still read as very very dry and not in like a good way in some scenes for me. I, honestly, very brief. I'm going to say rewatching the movie. I I really found myself loving Ileana Douglas's character. I think she's so good in this movie. And she's one of those actresses that you've seen a bunch of stuff, but you never really maybe remember. Oh, yeah. But she's so good in this movie as an art teacher. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's so pretentious. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah, it. The character is so like such an over the top trope of a person, <laughs> but somehow she makes it work. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my favorite. Can we, can we just, I just want to talk about like the whole art school story arc just really quick. <laughs> yeah. Because it makes no sense. Like. <laughs> outside of the movie if only because like they all had like all these kids had to go to arts class for the whole summer why is that one girl so good at art if she's in like the retake class that's right. that's all that i had to, <laughs> I had to say about well it. yeah again i think that that borrows heavily from another daniel klaus story called art school confidential uh which is also okay. made into a, okay. a, a, a film which is somewhat less successful of an adaptation in my opinion but there, he does bring a lot of his autobiographical experiences going to art school into that that scene so that in that mm-hmm. story so it again it fits the movie does the liberties it takes with the story makes sense in the larger sense of daniel klaus's work um yeah, yeah. and uh but very briefly i want to go back to maybe the aesthetics of it where it's so interesting to watch the movie and read the comic because i forgot the comic wasn't full color you know it's monochromatic but the movie right. they do that thing where they sort of saturate the color so much that it, it looks almost unreal um, yeah, and I, I think it, it actually sort of works really well in that sense. I, it captures the look of the movie, even though it is full color. Captures the look of the comic, even though it is in full color, and the comic is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that the way everything in the movie looks sort of like washed out, yeah, almost, and then everything in the book just sort of has like it's you know black and white with blue shading. Yeah, and I, I thought that it, it reminded me in, in some way of like. You ever been into somebody's bathroom and they have like the harsh white lights <laughs> in the bathroom and everything looks sort of weird? That was the the vibe I got from the entire comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like small town Los Angeles <laughs> somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that was that's where my head was with the whole thing. Yeah, I was I was definitely thinking because uh, Kate and I went on our honeymoon to Denver and there some other parts of the Southwest, mm-hmm. and I was definitely getting a very strong like like the ragged edge of a town like Denver or Los Angeles. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It definitely feels like it's on the fringes of something. And a lot, mm-hmm. so again, so the characters on the fringes of pop culture and all that stuff, it's all a metaphor guys. It's so metaphorical. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, again, that, that contrast of the idea of authenticity, I love the fact that they go to the original, like authentic diner, which is run down and doesn't look very pleasant. And then they go to the, 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 the homogenized, quote unquote 50 style diner and that's so much like has no soul to it you know what i mean and like yeah. the way that they contrast those two i think is really interesting and that kind of plays out throughout the entire movie the way it looks i think mm-hmm. yeah i thought i loved the the 50s diner more in the movie than in the yeah. book because yeah. in the book it seemed i and i don't know you know shit about old music but it seemed like they were playing like 50s hits in right. the diner in the comic yeah whereas in the movie it was just some like whatever was current uh pop rap or something like that yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that that i thought was a strange choice but it definitely plays up that sense of what the movie's trying to hint at is like they feel so out of place in contemporary pop culture but they're not even making an attempt to fit in you know i mean they're miserable because of that mm-hmm. you know so um 
I again, I think that the for me that is what is successful. Rewatching the movie, I did. I have to agree with you, Mike. I think maybe the last twenty minutes don't quite work that well, you know, in mm-hmm. retrospect. But that ending again for getting on the bus. I think maybe the comic does it in a more interesting way, but I do think that's a great way to end the movie. And did you guys? Oh, totally. Did you guys catch the post credit scene? It is a comic book movie. It does have a post credit scene. No, I didn't. I, <laughs> I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, if you watch the entire credits, there's a scene where it's the scene where Steve Buscemi's character gets in the fight with the guy at the um, convenience store, and he ends up kicking the shit out of the dude. So it's a retake of that scene where Steve Buscemi wins the fight. So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually That's pretty fantastic. funny. So, That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I guess um maybe to kind of wrap it up here. So I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think for me, as I stated at the top of the show, this is a very successful comic adaptation. And I think it's interesting that I believe this is Terry Zweigoff's first um, narrative film. He directed the documentary about Robert Crumb a few years before this. So maybe yeah. that might be a sense why it kind of feels different. Cause it's kind of his first attempt to make a, a conventional plot driven narrative. Mm-hmm. But that all that said, I think the ability that him and uh, Daniel Klaus have to translate the feeling of the comic more or less onto the screen and make a movie that isn't a replacement or a direct adaptation for the comic. It stands alongside it as a interesting story. That to me is the most, the most I want from a comic book adaptation into a film, you know what I mean? Not to replace it or to be a direct translation, but something that you can enjoy equally as much as the original material. What do you guys think? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. You know, I think that trying to make a direct, like you mentioned, using the comic as the as the storyboard, I think that would have been a mistake because I don't think that that would have worked as a film at all. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. And and Mike, you talked about not really liking that. You know, they had to kind of tie everything up. But I, I don't know if I would have made it through this movie if it had been as disconnected from itself as the comic seemed at times. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that they they did what they had to do to take the story without necessarily like remaining faithful to it like it was some kind of, you know, holy book or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that there's there's definitely some merit in creating something that is a reinterpretation of an existing work. And especially to have the creator involved, right? I mean, like, if we you look at, you know, the big superhero books, you know, people pick and choose the things that they want to bring into the movies and all that stuff. And what's funny is that I think that exact same thing happened for this movie, but it works really well. Um, not to say it doesn't work well for superhero movies, but it works really well because yeah. it's, a, it's a totally different type of thing. It's not like bringing in a different power set or a different super suit or something like that. Instead, it's... You know, bringing in specific scenes of the movie that convey the same feeling, but telling a completely different story, right. all things considered, yeah. um, with the same characters. And I don't think that that's bad. And I think it's, it super works for this movie because it's not like I feel like these two are like the, the comic and the movie are two separate entities that know nothing of each other. Instead, it's it's they came from the same mind and they are just two interpretations of the same feeling. And I, I think that that super works um, as a movie. And I it's it's an impressive thing to see someone make it adaptation that isn't just a one-to-one remake of the comic to sit and, and still manage to convey mm-hmm. i think the same message on the whole um i mean for the most part I, you know i mentioned some of my differences that i had or thoughts about it earlier but um even still like that idea of of 
not fitting in that counterculture thing, you know, everything that you've, you've, yeah. you've been talking about. I think it it's, works super well, and it's it's an impressive feat. I I'd love to see another movie done in this kind of capacity. Yeah, and like like Seymour is definitely a weirdo that could exist in the Ghost World comic. Like absolutely, absolutely. Yeah the the fact that they were able to take that character who's basically on one page in the comic and make it yeah. seem like the same character in the whole movie like it it, it, it does it really well. Um, yeah. Also, very briefly, I think my favorite line in the whole movie is like when they're at the diner and they're spying on Seymour. And he orders the milkshake, and Thor Birch says, "You know, oh my gosh, he's ordered a giant glass of milk like that." Like, <laughs> for some reason, that's always stuck with me. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so yeah, guys, thanks for doing this, sitting down, chatting with me about Ghost World. Um, I, I want to know what their listeners think about this movie. If they have other movies they want to hear us talk about, other successful adaptations, please let us know. You know where to find us if you're listening to this. We're all on Twitter. I'm at Oh Hi Polly. Brian's at, at Brian Head. Mike is at Mike Rappin. The show is at IRSB Podcast. Let us know what you think about this uh, movie club show. We'll see if we can do more of it. It wouldn't exist without the help of the people on Patreon. Thank you for supporting the show and making extra content like this possible. If you want to uh, upgrade your uh, patron uh, amount or want to subscribe to that, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcast. And then, of course, if you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions on movies we should talk about, let us know at our email, rsbpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you, Brian and Mike, for joining me. Thank you for listening. Until next time, we'll uh, see you at the movies. We'll come up with a better <laughs> closing. Get out of here so I can sweep, on, so. sweep up the popcorn. Yeah, that's a wrap. Something like there that. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Cut. Cut.